Welcome back to the official SASTA podcast with your host Harry Stebbings at H Stebbings on Snapchat and brought to you by the main man at SASTA, Jason Lemkin at JasonLK on Twitter. And talking of Jason and SASTA today, we're bringing you another incredible interview from SASTA 2016. So for all those that didn't make it, here's a little teaser of some of the amazing content at the event. And for this conversation, we have Jay Simons, president at Atlassian, discussing the incredible 13-year journey with Atlassian to the 5 billion IPO in December. And if you love the discussion today, then you can head over to sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com, and join me and Jason for Sasta 2017 by buying your tickets. It would be fantastic to see you there. However, it's now time for me to hand over the mic to the main men, Jason and Jay. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. About a million things I want to talk about. I only want to talk a little bit about the IPO, but I do want to talk about time and the journey a little bit. So sure. Atlassian was, what, 14 years to IPO? 13. 13 years. So we see a lot, uh, you know, uh, go public early, hurry up, uh, unicorn rounds are, are silly. It's certainly interesting the last couple of days. High level question, d- does it matter? It could. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I think like every company is going to be unique and individual. You know, for us, uh, you know, we've been a company that's been bootstrapped entirely from the very beginning. Yes. And, you know, I think we took our time. We probably could have gone public. I mean, certainly, you know, we had 10 straight years of profitability. Yes. And, um, 10 straight years of, of, you know, decent growth. So I think we had the profile of a company that could have gone public two or three or four years earlier. Um, but we took our time. You know, part of it for us was getting, getting into the rhythm of, of operating as a public company for a series of years. And so we yeah. practice. You know, for two years prior to going public, we practiced doing quarterly earnings calls, and we practiced. You did uh, actually did quarterly. Oh yeah, I with, practiced just running you in Excel, or who was on the call? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, sometimes with the board, sometimes just internally. Yeah. But you know, I think understanding, um, trying to understand what it's like, what it will be like as a public public company, and getting into the rhythm rhythm of acting like that. Yes. You know, was part of the maturity and or maturation and growing up that we felt we wanted to do. And you know, I think there's a lot of companies that don't do that, and they figured it out afterwards. And you know, I think for some of them that's not okay. For some of them, it is okay. For us, you know, we felt like we wanted to take our time, and it's kind of a measure, you know, measure twice, cut one strategy. So Atlassian had the luck; it could have IPO'd early if you wanted. Anyone can have a great IPO even when you hit 100 million in revenues. Um, the, the big round you did was secondary, so you didn't you clearly didn't need the money, right? right. Um, so what did you just because there's so much? It's so confusing to hear the noise about Uber should IPO. What does Atlassian get out of the IPO? I mean, you get a currency for M&A, but let's put that aside. It's easier to buy a company. Yeah. But apart from that, what did you? What, do, what have you? What have you? What have you gotten out of that? Uh, the employees got liquidity. Right, so there was some liquidity already. That's certainly one thing. Employees right. get liquidity. There's other ways for employees to get liquidity, but you know, I mean, the, you know, even if you, even if you're taking kind of secondary rounds from private investors, eventually you're setting a fuse that at some point, whether you're Atlassian or Uber, you're yeah. probably going to take the public market stage. You know, eventually, you're just you have eventually to. leapfrogging, yeah. you know, private secondary after private secondary. So. You know, you're getting employees liquidity, and that was certainly important to us. We had uh, employees that had been with a company for over a decade. In fact, we took all of the 10-year employees to New York to celebrate the IPO, and there was a yeah. big gaggle of them. And so there's a bunch of people that have worked really hard um, along that journey. That's one. You know, certainly it's a branding event for any company that takes the public stage. It was an important one for us. And so, you know, we're really proud of the customer franchise we've built, but, you know, we barely scratched the surface. And so I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies around the globe that haven't yet heard of Atlassian, haven't heard of our products. And, you know, this is an amplifier for that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I believe, and we believe that, you know, the best... Now, is, is that true? It's, I mean, I, I know it's true because you said it, but that's interesting. So even today, for your target customers, you feel like brand awareness isn't in the 90s or, or at some level? 
Uh, well, remember, like, we're always evolving our target customer base. Yeah. So, you know, we started at a very early age just targeting developers and software and technical teams and then yeah. expanding into IT and also now expanding into every business team inside of a company. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the amplification of brand is going to help that, help, you know, help us uh, kind of attack that bigger opportunity. Yes. Um, so that's, that's the second thing. I yeah. think the third, third thing is, you know, we believe that the best run pub, you know, best run companies are public companies. And, and so I think, you know, operating as a public company applies some pressure, but also I think some discipline to how you run your business. Yeah. And, you know, we've always believed from very early on, early on the founders, um, you know, basically said, we want to build, you know, we want Atlassian to, to outlive us, which is kind of a hard thing for a founder to think about from day one. Like, we want Atlassian to crazy. be an indelible yeah. 50-year company, right? So we might not be selling Jira or Confluence or HipChat 50 years from now, but we want Atlassian to be building and selling something. That's sort of their goal. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, th- I think if you think about that journey, you know, taking the public stage, it's hard to imagine... 50-year indelible companies that, that haven't taken the public stage. Um, and so I do, I do think it helps kind of with operate, you know, operational discipline and help build better companies over the long run. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the kind of package of reasons. And, you know, also for us, it's not, you know, a lot of people confuse an IPO with, with sort of a terminus event, like it's the destination. <laughs> If you're, if, you're building, <laughs> if you're building a 50-year company, it's yeah. just a mile marker. It's not like people at Google today are talking about the IPO. It's not like people are Microsoft are t- you know, talking about when Microsoft went public in 1986. Yeah. Right? It's just Microsoft and Google and Facebook now are very big companies that focus on growth and you know, the 10 or 15 or 20 years in front of them. And I should say, by the way, that you know, raising money is another, it's another really important, kind of the fourth important reason. You know, Atlassian had been bootstrapped from the very beginning, had never raised institutional capital on its balance sheet. So we did two secondary rows, second, two secondary rounds. You know, one with Excel in uh, 2010 and one with, with T. Rowe Price yeah. um, in 2013. And for us, like, those were really intentional decisions, right? It, you know, in part, it was about secondary liquidity for employees and founders that had, had worked for a long time. But it was also, you know, we had no, you know, until 2010, we, we you know, the board was effectively just the two founders, yeah. So we had Those kind of really, board meetings. Yeah, we had, <laughs> but we had really no kind of outside, you know, advisors that were active and involved and thinking about um, kind of growth and hurdles. We and let's chat about over. that just a little minute because sure. that's not an uncommon scenario because we have a lot of bootstrap folks here that got to a couple million in revenue. So is 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 that a? And I've learned a lot in the companies that I've post founder I've invested in. What do you think about having no one, no one on the board, no one to outside and challenge you? Right. It, it's. Uh, I, I think it's important to have outside perspective. Yeah. And, you know, for us, it was, you know, at the, at the, we'd just gone through 2008, 2009. So global yes. financial crisis. Those were challenging times. And, yeah. you know, we were, we were at kind of a phase of growth where, where I think, you know, we'd had kind of a bunch of advisors, sort of informal advisors that I think had provided input or guidance to the company over time, but not kind of really a formal, somebody that was really thinking about um, kind of the phases of growth that we were either going to bump into or, or leap over. And so that was, you know, Excel, uh, Excel and sort of the secondary round that we did in 2010 kind of gave us that. You know, Rich Wong sat on the board, um, super, super incredible guy. Yeah, and great. I think provided, you know, a lot of, a lot of great advice and guidance also opened up, um, you know, some networking channels that might have been difficult for us to open up at the time in terms yeah. of people we wanted to hire and add to the board. You know, also became kind of a branding opportunity in 2010. It was, you know, Lassian had been this company that had flown under the radar for a long time. And the $60 million round in 2010, even though it was secondary and didn't, uh, you know, didn't, um, you know, hit the company's balance sheet, it was the single, it was the single largest 
you know, venture capital round that Excel had done. It caught my um, attention. At, at the time, right? So it caught it was my like, attention, yeah. I was like, wow, here's a company that, you know, people hadn't heard of, and why is all this, this capital going, going to, you know, even, even at the time just founders, why is it going to the company? In 2013, you know, the, the other secondary round we did was to, with T. Rowe Price, and that was yeah. intentional because what we wanted was, again, this is part of the, the kind of measure twice, cut once approach. We wanted to understand how big institutional investors thought about the business. And so what we wanted with T. Rowe Price, even though that round, it was like 130 went all to employees, again, didn't, didn't go to the company. What we got in exchange for that was a, you know, a deeply experienced institutional firm that we could spend time with and understand the questions that they asked, how they thought about our business, uh, you know, and, and, and what that would look like because we were about to take the public stage and, and by, you know, several orders of magnitude yeah. add a whole bunch of other institutional investors that would think about the business the same way. I want to talk about a topic that you've talked about ad nauseum, but I want to take a sort of a, an approach that's focused on the founders, which is sales-free models. Um, and you're, you're, you have a fascinating background, if people don't know it, because you have an enterprise sales background. <laughs> yeah. So for, for real, right? You've, I, I think you've carried a bag or you've come close to it, right? I did. Like, yeah. started, started in enterprise software carrying a bag. Yeah, carrying so, a bag. The first seven years of, of my career was, uh, was hard slog in enterprise sales. Yeah. And so a cu- I want to, I don't want to, I want to just hone in on a couple things on it, uh, specifically. So, Look, everyone in the world, no matter, and I love sales and you have a passion for it. We'd, we'd all love to not have a sales team if, for no other reason than cost and, yeah. and, and overhead management, right? Um, it's, it's alluring, the idea of having this. I want to dig in on a couple things. First of all, to be clear, it's not a human-free business, right? We have a lot of happiness officers. We do have a lot of folks at Alaskan engaging with customers. Sure, absolutely. Right? A lot of folks, right? And it's, it's hundreds of folks. Or sure. you have, and, right? and, and we have a channel, which we'll get to in a second. And we have a channel know. as well, right? Yeah. And are, in their own way, they're selling hard, the channel. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. How does that, and, and I know you thought a lot about this, I, as my, in my experience, as the deal size goes up, you're leaving money on the table, which may be okay, right? Because it, it may be a trade-off, because Atlassian was minting cash, and many peers are, are, are not. Um, but is, is, is that clear to you? Is, I mean, because I forget, you have, I don't know how many customers in the S1 that are over 50K ACV, but it's a lot. I think it was close to 1,000. Close to 1,000. Right, fifty k customers don't mind being sold to, even if they're IT or product centric or dev centric. Right, yeah. they don't they don't mind being sold to. I think. Correct. So what's the what's the, for folks here? What's the trade off? What 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 are your Zen learning? Obviously, Atlassian is a huge success, but what's your advice to folks? Uh, well, first of all, it, it, it may be possible, maybe probable in our business that you know, like you're you're achieving the same lifetime value of a customer over a longer period of time, right? So people always say to me, don't you think if you spend a bunch of time in a particular account that you could pull a lot of that revenue forward? Yes. And I do believe that's true. Uh, but oftentimes, like, you know, when you do that, you create uh, worse long-term value for your company, better short-term value because you're pulling all that revenue forward. So even in the case where, you know, we're trying to get to a million dollars in, in kind of annual customer spend, we do that over a period of years yeah. at far, far more efficient, less, less upfront cost. So the other thing is that, you know, when you think about the recipe for, for our business model, it's not as simple as like, don't have traditional quota carrying sales reps. It's not that simple at all. Uh, when we think about kind of our model, first of all, we started with, uh, size of the market. So for us, the market's huge. Like, we're not targeting the Fortune 500, we're targeting the Fortune 500,000. Like, we want to sell our software to every single company on the planet. Yep. If we were targeting the Fortune 500,000, we would have a completely different model, right? We, we'd be workday. 
Yeah. Um, also, like uh, the nature of, of how we enter inside of an organization is different. Like companies that buy our software, you know, when you buy Workday as an example, you're only going to buy one of them. You're not going to have kind of multiple HR management systems. You're not going to have multiple general ledgers. You buy one, right? Yeah. So that is a very explicit top-down sale. I'm going to talk to executives in the company, and there's a, there's a whole business case around the one thing that we're going to have. We sell team software. So first of all, we enter inside of the team. And you could have lots of teams that use different technologies, right? And that's okay too. Um, We want to cement that one valuable landing spot and then expand over time. And and so top down, you know, it's really hard to do that way. So first, pick a market, it's huge. And then build the product to to reach that market. So for us, we focused a lot on building a product that, that teams or customers could get started in minutes. Yeah. And we priced it for affordability. So we thought, okay, if it's a really big expensive cost, we're going to have to explain why it's expensive, right? And so you remove friction with with price, and you create still future opportunity that you can capture over time. So we want the ability to expand either with additional usage and seats, or we want the ability to expand with additional products that we could sell the customer in the future. Yeah. And then the fourth point, and this is all a careful chemistry, the fourth point is you have to remove as much friction as possible from the customer's path. And this is, I think, what's really hard in a traditional sales, sales model. For us, friction meant, removing friction meant publish your price. Publish every single price. Don't have a contact us to figure out how much it is because that is a friction point. So publish every single price. Let the customer try it, you know, kind of on their own terms without needing to engage us to figure out what they're trying to do with it. Invest as much as you can in the product to make sure that that trial experience converts without a lot of hand-holding. And create, as you mentioned, like we've got you know, a number of people inside of the business that are focused on, we call them product and customer advocates, that are focused on helping answer questions the customer has. And so we say to every single customer, if you need extra TLC, let us know, right? We'll bend over backwards to help you. The difference is, is that in our model, we, we identify that as a kind of a bug in the model, right? It's something that we need to fix in the future. We don't want every single customer, if we're targeting 500,000, to have to raise their hand and for us to engage. Um, we want to figure out, like, what was the problem that the customer needed human help solving, and how do we solve it for the next 499,000 customers in the future? And, you know, it's been 13 years where we're consistently improving, refining, improving, refining, experimenting. And, you know, we do, I've said this before, we do a lot of experimentation with, with sort of traditional approaches. What happens when we pick up the phone and call every customer and really try to sell hard, really try to, to pull all that value forward? And you can do it. The, the challenge is, is, does the cost scale? And I think when you look at a lot of SaaS companies, that's where they get into some challenges, where your sales and marketing expenses are way out of band with, with your top-line growth. Yes. And the trade-off, remember, in most businesses is something has to give for you to, to make money as a business. You either give on sales and marketing costs, you either make more money on top line, yeah. or you give on other functions of the business, like R&D. Yeah. And it always seems strange to me that, that for a SaaS company, for a software company building product, that your sales and marketing costs would be twice what your R&D costs would be. And I think if you look at a lot of companies, they have, you know, they have at least from our perspective, they, they have it inverted, right? We spend twice on R&D you know, that, that we do in sales and marketing. So that is amazing. Sorry, there's a long but let me dig into that a little bit for the founders here, right? So... Once we all get to a million or two million revenue, we figure this out. Oh my gosh, you know, sales and marketing, even if it's accretive, right? It, can, it should be accretive if it's done right, sure. but it's expensive and it, it's hard. So 
I feel like Atlassian is the new base camp. And let me explain what I mean by that for founders. So a couple of years ago, before you, before you raised the 60 million or whatever, when I, I, was, I used Bitbucket, but I didn't even know that it was an Atlassian product, right? Yeah. All founders would talk about, I want to be like Basecamp. I want to just be on my own and build cool software, and I don't need salespeople. And now everyone wants to do the Atlassian. Now we get it. Now that I mean, Atlassian's huge, right? So we all want that, but when you meet with founders, where do you advise them that, hey, we're not, we can't all do this, right? Not every, I mean, Salesforce is a success. Workday, work, the Workday is an extreme because we're all doing eight-figure and up deals. Yeah. But when you meet with founders... Where do you tell them, hey, slow down, like, even if you're doing a developer-centric product, don't, don't copy our model, right? What's your advice? To well, folks part here? of it is just the ingredients that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Like, you know, think about your market. You know, if, I, if I'm ServiceNow, and I'm, 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 which is a great company, great right? Company. Yeah. And really only trying to sell a massive piece of software for a massive project to 2,000 companies, yeah. right? Like, we have a, an equivalent product that we're trying to sell to 200,000 companies, right? And so the strategies that, that both of those companies employ are vastly different, right? Like we'll, you know, in, in any given period, we'll probably, you know, have as many service desk customers as yeah. it, you know, it was kind of a the new... The next vehicle. generation of the web was brand new. Right. right? And, and so, you know, AdWords was sort of a, was effectively a new approach to kind of reach the, reach people that were looking for something that you had. And yeah. so they really instrumented that effectively. But every, you know, the first handful of prospects we spent a lot of time with in, in, in 2002, but they were focused, I think because they were engineers, they were focused on, on doing what I mentioned earlier, constantly trying to improve, say, well, like, what, why are we engaging? What questions are we answering? Yeah. How do we answer that to begin with? And this is where I, I tell founders, think about that. Like, once you hire your first sales, salesperson, is, your, is all of the energy, the, the emphasis going to be on scaling, scaling the human approach or figuring out how to take what you can from that human approach? Because it might still scale to a certain point. But if your market is 500,000 people, you know, 500,000 companies or 100,000 companies or 2,000 companies, is that the most efficient, best approach to sort of reach them? Yeah. And everything is, is, needs to be calibrated, right? Market, pricing, products. Like, it's not as simple as, as you know, traditional salespeople or no traditional salespeople. It's a lot more complicated. And then the last thing I'd mention is, you know, we, we have a channel. Like, we chose... Uh, really early on that where there were opportunities that needed more human touch, uh, how could we do that the most efficiently? And so, like, in some ways, we ripped the Microsoft playbook of, you know, the 80s and 90s, which is, like, we hired, you know, there's a firm service rocket, uh, you know, in Australia that I think has been a, a partner of ours for over a decade and uh, and serviced in New Zealand. There were uh, partners in France and Germany. And so, like, we didn't speak French, we didn't speak German, but we had people that did. Yep. And if you think about it, like, our sales force... You know, we've got 2,000 salespeople that are out in the field. They're not employed by us, but they effectively They're do the same job. They're salespeople, yeah. So I, I'd love to talk more about, but I want to talk about a related point. I remember, I could never, I tried to Google this, I couldn't find it, but I remember a few years ago, someone on the senior team said one of the most important things that Lasting ever did was have more than one product, right? And I haven't yeah. looked what the revenue mix was in the IPO, but you've got at least three of the four that are material, right? Yep. That are over 10% of your revenue, I think. Correct. So boy, as a founder, that's intimidating, right? How And so... Like, how do you, especially for the management team, how do you focus on four products? You can't, you can't put 100% of your time. I mean, it's a myth. You have to force rank things. Yeah. And doesn't number four, isn't number four going to fail as the competitors get more aggressive? And how do, you, how do you juggle four, even without the sales team, which helps a little bit, because this way you don't need four sales teams, yeah. right? But it's a, isn't it a challenge as well as an opportunity? Uh, totally is. Uh, so, so I think. You <laughs> and know, what's the advice? Right. What's the advice? To you folks? know, hindsight. Hindsight being twenty twenty, it's easy to to look back and say that was a great decision. Yeah. Um. 
you know, the founders will say, you know, they started, started lasting with Jira in 2002. Confluence, which is the next biggest product, they shipped in 2004. Yep. And they did it really to scratch their own itch, right? So at the time, you know, they were using a bunch of open source wikis and they didn't like them and they thought, well, we could build one better. And yep. it, it, it probably, I think there was at the time, there was a debate between, you know, the two founders around, man, shouldn't we really just be doubling down on this? This is a huge opportunity. And I think in hindsight, it was exactly the right decision to say, let's, let's sort of divert engineering focus a little bit, build a second product, right? Identify, you know, like discover whether or not we have product market fit for this thing, which they did, and then kind of double down on two products. Had we not done that, Atlassian would be a vastly different company, yeah. right? You know, Atlassian, Jira is a, is a great product. It's a big product, but it is, it is not, you know, I think Atlassian is a much bigger company as a result of expanding product strategy. So that's sort of the first part. And again, but, that, does, but, that isn't But challenge work. me a little bit. Imagine, but Jira is a big, I, I, and I don't want to get anything that hasn't been disclosed. Were the revenue breakdowns, are they published publicly or not? No. But Jira is a big platform, right? Yeah. So what if, just hypothetically, you'd done nothing but Jira, wouldn't uh, Jira wouldn't be even better? Wouldn't it be even more robust? Yeah, and and uh, ha- I mean, it has high market share, but wouldn't it even have more market share? You don't think so? Hard. It's a hard hypothetical. You know, it's it's, <laughs> a, it's a hard hard hypothetical debate to, yeah. to have. I, I mean, I think like I, the other part of the question that I, that you asked that I was going to answer is yeah. like it really for us it really hinged around product strategy. Like we f- we think about the team. Yeah. And so for us, you know, every team, irrespective of whether they're building software or selling or marketing, needs a way to, a place to kind of organize what they're doing together as a group. They need a place to discuss it, which is what HipChat does. Yeah. They need a place to create and share content, which is, is Confluence. And so that sort of triumvirate, I think of that as the three legs of kind of a team collaboration stool. And, and so like we've really focused on kind of building out all three legs. And I think we're less of a company if we only have one or two legs. Yeah. And I should know this, but I don't. How much organic or inorganic cross sell do you get across the, the suite? A lot. A lot. And a how lot. does that happen? Like describe, how does that, how does that happen? Because we all like to think yeah. that cross departmental or cross product uh, expansion happens. But in my experience, usually the HR department does not go to the VP of sales and tell them to go try this product they love, right? And different products are same as different departments, but you might have a CTO that loves, that loves HipChat, but, but they're not, they, they didn't use Jira at their last company and they don't want to learn Jira, right? Yeah. And so how does that happen? So for us, uh, a couple of ways. One, there's just natural, there's natural network effects built into our software because, you know, we're team oriented, right? And so, and remember, even if you're in marketing, you're not part of just a marketing team. You're part of a whole bunch of different projects around your organization where you get exposed to what we do. When you, when you do and you like it, you pivot around to the other teams you're working with and you say, man, what they're doing over there that I was a part of, I really like. Let's start using that. That's how we get into HR. Um, so we don't necessarily have to land inside of HR. We can expand because someone in HR gets exposed to, Jira, Confluence, and HipChat and says, man, the rest of us have to be doing what they're doing. So there's kind of a natural, organic word-of-mouth expansion that exists. Yeah. We try to, to aid that with some things that all of us do, right? Like email. We, we try to say, like, hey, did you know you, 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 you who are our they are? So, like, end-user NPS is probably, the, like, the important uh, leading indicator of future growth. Like, if your end-users aren't happy, you know, even if I'm a Workday user and if I'm not happy, long-term, that's not a great thing for Workday, even if the HR person loves them. So that's, we sort of think about it that way. And then we've put a bunch of hooks in product uh, to kind of point people to other things that they could do or use or trial. And if you think about it with, you know, we've got 50,000, 54,000 active customers now, 
that is the best way to canvas that opportunity and to expand it. It wouldn't sure. necessarily be to pinpoint one after another after another. And yeah. so back to R&D, like we invest a lot in trying to figure out what is the, the most efficient vehicle for us to expand the fastest, the biggest audience. Yeah. And everything we do is about that. Yeah. But, and then just one last question on this. I'd love to spend forever on it, but I want to hit a couple. But for the, for, for the core four products and on the management team, when you're thinking about products strategically, how much time do you spend on each? How do you divide up? There's only so many hours in the day, right? And so how do you, how do you think about force ranking your time and effort? Is it just based on revenue, or how do you, how do, you do it? Do, no, you have I mean, different G, do you have GMs? I'm sure you have GM for each we, product, we right? We do, and it, it's, it's based on kind of a combination of market opportunity and, you know, market strategy, competitive strategy. Yeah. Like, you know, the priorities are going to shift around um, depending on kind of the given market or product or priority. I got you. Um, you know, we do, we do focus on making sure, like, the, the, the thing for us now, and I mean, this is probably true when we were a lot smaller, too. Like, you think about the quantum that a product's going to contribute, and, uh, and the, the, you know, the size that that can grow over time. So like in our model, we often talked about, uh, early on that this sort of use this, this, uh, you know, the metaphor of a snowball rolling down the hill. Yeah. And, and so if you think about it, every new product is sort of a new snowball. And what we try to do is like you either, you either launch more snowballs. So like they start rolling down or you take the overall slope, which is like the investment that we would make in, you know, kind of automation or end user engagement or kind of smart recommendation strategies in product. And that steepens the slope, right? And so the steeper the slope, the more any individual ball, if we know that it's, it's going to get all the way down to the bottom of the hill, it's got a big market, the more snow it accumulates. And so, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to drop balls at the top of the hill that we don't think are, are going to turn into big snowballs. Yeah. And then at the bottom, we can build snowmen. I don't know, it's a butcher. Oh, no, it's a good, it's a good one. Let me, one other thing on complexity I want to make sure before we run out of time. So Atlassian's interesting because it has multiple products. It's also interesting to me um, that you have multiple ways that you sell that software. You have on-prem, you have services, you have channel, you have hosted SaaS, right? You have about every box at the moment that you could check on the panoply of ways to deliver software directly and directly. So... High level, my view is, you know, does it even matter, right? And a lot of founders are like, I don't want to have services, I don't want to have ProServe, I don't want to do this because I've got to be in this, this narrow box. But Atlassian, you know, and it's evolving, right? It's going to become more and more SaaS over time. Sure. But today it's, it's, it's the whole, it's the whole kit and caboodle, right? Sure. Well, I mean, the, the answer to that question again, uh, largely is answered by our kind of origin and when we started. So in 2002, uh, you know, we started kind of in a market where I think SaaS, uh, was a less common adoption pattern, certainly Even in scary. 2002. Even scary. Yeah, and so like we started, you know, we started shipping behind the firewall server, server yeah. software. And so like we're, we're, because we started there, we're really good at it. Like we know how to do it, do it. You know, we, I think, kind of read the tea leaves early enough where we started a SaaS business now uh, close to 10 years ago. And so, you know, our SaaS business on its own is a really big SaaS business, but I think we figured out, which is hard to do, how to, how to thread both of those needles and not have it be a distraction or not have it be, in a, be a weight that slows the company down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, that's a, it's a tricky thing to give people advice. You know, should I have started a SaaS business? Should I go behind the firewall? You know, that's, there could be some trade-offs there that I think every single company needs to think about carefully. And, you know, overall, the market, as most of us know in the room, is like moving towards cloud. And so yeah. I think you have to look at your individual with flavors market cloud, segment. With private cloud and hybrid cloud. Yeah. And so it, it, it's getting simpler and then it's getting more complicated. Yeah. It gets simpler, and, right? You know, it's been good for us. We've, we've, been, we've been able to kind of to, you know, attack a, a wider segment of the market because, 
you know, we've figured out how to, how to support both deployment choices. And, and again, like in removing friction, which is sort of like the mantra of the business, we yeah. simply present that to the customer as a free choice they're going to make on their own. And so if they've got an IT department and infrastructure and they're more comfortable installing and managing server there, great. Like, yeah. let them knock themselves out. If they want us to do it and they want, our, they want us to run it on our cloud platform, great. And we, we, we kind of don't care either way. Yeah. One last question. I, I feel like I'm just getting going on the stuff I want to learn. But I want to... So whatever, Atlassian's blown through 100. It's blown through 300 million. I, I have this thesis of how far you can squint and see on the horizon. I think you can squint about 10x and you can feel about 3x, right? And so, what, looking at a billion, which is a scary number, probably, what, how big was Elastian when you joined in terms of revenue? Uh, like 20. Okay, so a billion's a, a, a big journey from, so what, what's gonna change at a billion? Do you, do you have a sense? What, what has, does anything have to change? Um, outside of bringing in better talent? Or where, what does the world look like out there at a billion in revenue? Oh, man. I mean, if, I, if, I, if I had a crystal ball that told me all that... Uh, well, you know what it looks like next quarter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I would just say, like, so absolutely there's going to be change. There's change, you know, there's change for every company as it, as it sort of crosses a bunch of big milestones. And so, you know, there's going to be change around the size of the company and the number of Atlassians, you know, that are working together. There's going to yeah. be change potentially, like, in markets that we kind of thrust into and, like, how our products need to evolve. I, I, I can't... I, I can't predict all of the, the changes nor tell you exactly what, what, what they will be, but uh, yeah, there certainly will be some. Well, let me ask you a final related question to it. In this whole journey of, of webification of everything, of SaaSification of everything, as Atlassian's gone from B2D to product to IT, in this whole thing, what, in, what inning do you think we're in of this journey for everything to become webified and SaaSified? Where are we in the second inning, the fourth inning? How does it feel having Atlassian been on this journey for a while? Inning one or inning two? Earning, earning one, earning two. Yeah, very, very, very early part of the game. Very early, For right? sure. Yeah. Yeah. So a few, a few down days in the market, no big deal, right? No big deal. <laughs> All right, my friend, thank you very much. This was epic. Thanks. Yeah. And I'd like to say a huge hand to Jay for giving up his time today to be on the show. Absolutely incredible to hear the Atlassian story. And you can follow Jason on Twitter at JasonLK and find me on Snapchat at HStebbings if you'd like to see more from us all here at Sasta. And if you love the discussion, then you can head over to Sasta.com. That's S-A-A-S-T-R.com. And join me and Jason for Sasta 2017 by buying your tickets on the site. I will make sure to have the mojitos there and ready for you. As always, we're so grateful for all the support and cannot wait to bring you Monday's episode with the one and only Aaron Ross, author of Predictable Revenue. It's a special one and we can't wait to bring it to you.